Strategy. Design. Marketing. UX. Digital. Development. This is Agencies That Build. This show is dedicated to leaders and teams that design and deploy in the digital world. My name is Jesse, and I'm a marketer and an agency owner. And I'm Varun. I'm not a marketer, but a coder and an agency partner. This show is sponsored by Together We Ship. On a mission to help agencies grow. All right, rock on. Here we are, Varun, my friend. How are you? Doing great. Who do we have for the guest today? I'm so excited to learn more about from her. I know, me too. I'm excited for this chat. So today's guest is a user experience architect, a product designer, a software strategist. Her company was named one of the world's top five UX agencies since 2016. She's the founder of Slide UX, Erin Young. Welcome to the show today. Hello, thanks for having me. <laughs> well, we're happy to have you. So we're going to start off our conversation with our usual question around what myth, what misconception, what bogus strategy, what's something that you would like to set the record straight on? Hmm. Well, <clears throat> one of the lessons that um, I often get the chance to talk about in my job is the myth that you can save time by skipping user research. Um, we do user experience and user interface design, and that includes research with end users to understand either what their problems are or how well the solutions that have been designed meet those needs. And um, we find that, you know, businesses are often interested in skipping this step in order to save time. But what actually happens is they end up spending a lot more time fixing the thing that has been developed uh, than they would if they would have discovered that before they got that far down the path. So if they just ask some questions up front, do you have any insider? So, you know, our folks listening or we want them to learn. Do you have any insider tips on conducting some of, you know, what are your, your top now I'm putting you totally on the spot. Top tips for conducting user research or what's your go-to question? Well, um, I, I welcome that because I really want everybody to be talking to their users. And I see even really experienced people get it wrong when they are in the context of salesperson. So, you know, that CEO trying to conduct interviews about their own product Early on, they're used to selling that product. They're used to pitching that product. And they're not going to ask the type of questions that they need to ask in order to really learn uh, how people feel because there's always going to be that sales angle to the language that they use. So we all know that you're not supposed to ask leading questions when you do research, but it can be a lot harder than it seems. And one easy solve is for somebody who's not in a sales capacity at all to be responsible for some of those early interviews. So that could be someone like us, or that could even be somebody inside of the organization that's not responsible for sales. Um, I think that um, the last thing that you want is to have people nod and say, yeah, yeah, no, it looks really good when in actuality, they see something really glaring about it, but they don't want to break your heart. So it's important to establish yourself as uh, somebody who's really looking for insight into what could be improved and what could be better. Um, and to let the person you're researching with know that they're helping you if they're critical. Well, what a, what a great myth to smash from somebody who is in this field, right? And I, there could be no better myth, I, I assume, from, from you, Erin, that could come. Now, talk to me about, like, so you mentioned, obviously, 
user research is super important and still not many people give enough importance to that. They don't want to spend time on it for cost or time or whatever reason. Um, and you, you rightly said that, you know, they could end up spending more time if they don't do that. Having said that, do you believe that every type of product or website or an app or a web app, you know, any, any type of project like that should need a UX research or there are certain specific type that you would spend more time on? Like, where do you, def you know, uh, draw that line? Like, yes, this does need, this type of work does need a research and this is not because, you know, it, it, I find companies and teams do get conflicted between, you know, where to put more, where to put most of their time on, right? UX does require time and it does cost a lot of money to the companies. And uh, maybe you can talk to us about how do you decide if this is the right type of project that needs a research? Right. So, you know, I think that that is, that is such a tricky question because what is a project? You know, a project could be something as small as adding a hyperlink on a page or a screen where it's needed, all the way up to define, designing an entirely new feature or even an entirely new product, right? So we defined uh, we define project a lot of different ways, and I think that that's part of the confusion. But one of the best ways to figure out whether uh, user experience research is warranted is to think about the opportunity cost or um, the cost of unraveling what's about to happen should you make the wrong decision. What's the risk on the other side if you got this wrong? And that cost can come in the form of the cost to rework it because something substantial has been built and it you'll have to pay again to rework it. It could be the opportunity cost of losing a development team for a couple of months on a feature that you learn in the end users didn't actually want. So that's not a future cost. That's a past cost, but it's time that could have been spent on something else. Um, it could be the cost of uh, market confusion or actually driving users away who are in your target audience by, let's say, focusing too much on the wrong audience. You know, the costs are different, but I think that it really is all about the cost of mistakes and understanding uh, what would be the potential downside of making the wrong decision. And then on the flip side of that, there's also the cost of the user research. That's another variable because like you said, it can be expensive and it can be time consuming, but it doesn't have to be. The tools are getting better and better um, every day. And we see that a lot firsthand because we're working with the variety of tools that are available out there in the marketplace to conduct uh, less and less expensive user research or access participant panels, et cetera. Etc. So um, I think that thinking about the cost of the mistake and then also strategizing for reducing the cost of the research might help you find a sweet spot in that decision. Um, so your team, your, your company focuses completely on UX and UI. How can you, can you give us an idea of how you are set up so that we can understand how much UX work versus how much, well, what percentage of the overall work should consist of the research versus, you know, the actual design and, you know, everything else that goes after the UX or the, the research work? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so our um, first time client engagements often involve a, like a 12-step process. And in that, 
two of the 12 steps are user research. We want to research the problem space as we go into solving a problem. And then we want to evaluate how well we solved it on the back half. Like, you know, after there are some ideas about how to solve it, how well does this work and iterate based on what we learned from users? Um, so that gives you one proportion of what that ratio might be. Um, but there are also other forms of research. So it's all about how you define things. You know, a stakeholder workshop where we're working with stakeholders to understand their problems, that's a form of research uh, with the organization who's sponsoring the project. Um, we might talk to stakeholders that are outside of the project team. We often look at um, their competitors or alternatives that users might use to accomplish similar tasks. And that's research as well, but those aren't user research. It really just, it depends how you define um, the different components of the project. I was gonna ask you if, you know, from a competitive standpoint, competitive research can provide some deep insights, but that's not, you You said it a minute ago, it's not user research. It's not people using whatever your product or services might be. And you're going to get insights in the market that way, but you're not going to be able to uncover, you know, your key differentiators or, you know, user experience between platforms and stuff like that. So, right. Absolutely. Like we think of it like a, trying to establish a 360 view of the problem and that competitive insight is, is one facet and the users is another very important facet, the internal organization's opinions of the market, but also of themselves and what they want to bring to market, their vision. Those are important angles as well. Competitive research is, is great because it can help you understand at a glance if somebody in your organization is considering an idea that absolutely nobody else is doing. Sometimes that can be a good thing. Sometimes that can be a bad thing. And you, you oftentimes know um, which way you feel about it once you've conducted the research. It can also help spark ideas like, wow, okay, there's just one way that this particular alternative is taking it further or interaction design ideas about how they handle particular interactions and how we might make them easier to use. But so many times we've conducted that competitive research or that what we call the analysis of, of alternatives. And then later you see those experiences change. You don't know why they change. You don't have any insight into how they were performing or what that company may have learned about them that caused them to change. And that's a good reminder as to why you don't want to hang your hat on just that type of research. And they probably went out and found something out and you went, mm, okay, pivot. <laughs> right. Yep. Question marks galore. Mm -hmm. So have you always been the UX strategy and design company or that has evolved? I know you are a practitioner. So tell us more about how you all started and what was the idea behind going into this domain? Absolutely. So to your first question, yes, we have always been focused on user experience design. And that was because this was my freelance practice. And after a couple of years doing this um, solo, I was swamped and I brought on my partner to join me at that time. And it's been uh, a company that has been growing ever since then. But where it all started for me, really, I can trace it all the way back to a college project. There was a book that I had to read for one of my classes um, by a guy named Paco Underhill. And this, uh, the book, I believe is called The Science of Selling, something kind of like that. Um, and it talked about retail research and how um, by observing how people um, act inside of stores, you can sometimes find ways to change the way that um, 
that purchases might flow. For example, if people feel crowded in a particular aisle, they might not spend that much time there, even if it's a decision that requires thought because they don't like being brushed from behind or like in the case of uh, one of the stories they told was a Victoria's Secret where there was absolutely no seating anywhere around the store and women would be shopping with their partners who didn't feel comfortable in the store. They had no place to sit and that created a sense of urgency that would cause women to not spend very long in the store. I just became really fascinated with how observations about people's behavior could drive business results. And that really could be that simple. And we see the same thing digitally. I was working in-house in a, um, it was a science and technology company with a multinational e-commerce website. And, um, the engineers had to pull together the content for the web pages that marketed the products. But obviously those engineers were doing a lot of things and they weren't specialists in web content. Um, my job was to get the pages live, but I just started to really kind of develop a fascination with how much I could help them in that transition from the content that they just wrote out in a Word document to making it as good of a possible web page as it could be. And these were techniques like they would give me a list of 20 links that they wanted to feature on the page. And I would suggest maybe we should just use three links because these are all really redundant or repetitive and users are gonna struggle to choose between them. Just really realized how simple it can be to observe what, people might experience as people and to use those insights to create better business results. And um, from there on, you know, have really been focused on the relationship between observations and results. Uh, I when my one of my very first jobs was an online company and they had one of those rooms where you would call in, you know, you would have somebody, there was a bunch of us who could sit there. It sounds wicked creepy, but an observation room where you could sit there and watch people do stuff on the internet. Um, but you could watch people kind of interact with test versions or vapor versions of pages or new offerings and stuff like that. And it was such a cool thing as someone who from the marketing side to be able to be like, oh, okay, you can really see the C or the S or however the page is designed um, to, to kind of understand the interaction there. Uh, this was, you know, many years ago. Um, so not recent, I'm sure things have changed, especially with the rise of cell phones. But it was such a, a cool moment to be like, oh my God, this is like, this is gonna influence how we're deciding to do all the things. Um, so that's uh Aaron, did you have a question? I saw I I saw him going in for a No, I think this is this is I I, uh, I think this is how things are today as well. Like those are the basic principles of premise on what the UX is all based on, right? As Erin mentioned, right, you know, understanding the user's behavior is what drives our, you know, the decisions to how to build, what to build, you know. Um, so that 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 was the, I think there are better tools available, but the basic premise is still the same. As you know, actually that leads me to my next questions around, you know, being home for the past year and change or the majority of us being elsewhere, you know, not in offices, it's obviously changed a lot of things in our behavior, you know, how we consume, how we shop. I mean, I have been to the food store way less times in the past year than, you know, and got it I have not done delivery yet, but I'll drive and pick it up. But I notice I spend less, you know, for an example, I'd be curious to hear 
um, from you, Erin, how you've seen being an expert in this space, what you've seen from, from your clients or some of those trends that you may be noticing as part of this COVID, post-COVID world. I feel like we're a little bit beyond it. I don't know. I'm like hesitant to say that. Anyways, we'd love to hear some of your thoughts and, and observations over the past year, maybe that you can share with some of our listeners. Yeah, absolutely. So um, for us, this was a scary time. I think for every business owner, it was not knowing what to expect or worse, knowing what to expect as, as this started to uh, arise. And for us, we were definitely among the not knowing exactly what to expect uh, camp. Um, what we saw happen was that some of our clients had to pause or pull back investments, but other clients really had to, um, hit the gas on investments, you know, um, because of the increased reliance on digital for a variety of things. Uh, one of our clients had features that they had planned much later in the year. And with everything that happened, all of a sudden, those features became super important. And we jammed with them on those and got the features designed and launched and they were acquired. I don't even know if that acquisition would have even been um, a thing had they not had those features and this strange confluence of need for those digital um, remote features that uh, we had added, right? Um, on the other hand, of course, there were some clients whose investments dealt in part with the physical world that we were all um, taking a break from. And so their projects became much less important. We had a lot of marketing clients who saw a major shift from what they had planned to do in person at trade shows and that kind of thing towards needing to generate all of those leads online. So that was another big thing as well. Um, and so for us, our business just got all kind of mixed around and it turned out okay. Um, but, you know, recognizing that digital would have to carry more weight than ever before changed the way that companies were distributing their budgets. And the question mark now is, well, so do they go back to let's say investing in the physical trade shows that they would have done probably, but will they pull the investment from web? Did web do what they needed it to for their business? And is that now just a new channel of investment for them? I think these are the question marks that we'll start to answer in the coming months. I think those are the question marks. A lot of us are just going to start to answer in the coming months. I know we've had conversations about, do we do that in person? What does hybrid look like? I hate the word hybrid. It was a good word a couple of years ago. And now I'm like so tired of it. Um, so from a COVID perspective, how did your business change? You know, as an agency owner, we've talked a lot about kind of what you do and your insights into the market there. But as you, as you know, the founder of uh, Slide UX, you know, it's a uh, seems to be a conversation topic that we chat with a lot of agency owners about. How are you guys, how has things changed within your organization? How are you guys able to kind of pivot is the word that I'll use there. Right. So it was, um, it was pretty interesting for us because we have always been a remote company. Um, we are now more distributed than ever all across the United States. Um, but even in our very early days, when we were all based in the Austin area, we were based here, but working from home and we would get together occasionally for team lunches and happy hours and that kind of thing. So um, it put it put a halt on some of our social programming and of course, in-person client meetings with clients that were local. But um, outside of that and the changes in who needed what because their businesses were changing, our work days weren't heavily impacted. Um, it 
really highlighted for us the value of some of the programs that we did have in place for connecting remotely as we saw so many other organizations really struggled to adjust. We had both the rush to figuring out how to be remote and be digitally connected in the early days. And then we had kind of the um, the languishing, the, the, the fact that they had done it for a while without solving the problems around really uh, protecting culture and staying connected in that way. So um, at that point, we just, we just felt really grateful for the fact that we had tackled a lot of those challenges incrementally along the way. And we were able to share some of our tips for staying connected as a remote organization with other people. Um, but outside of that, you know, we kind of got, we kind of got into this conversation a little bit earlier. Um, for me, one of my changes, which is, I feel the opposite from like 95% of people in society is that since we had always been at home, we were always cameras off because everybody else was, you know, in conference rooms and we didn't want to be perceived as, uh, informal or, you know, lacking in credibility. But this year, you know, cameras came on for everybody inside of their homes. And that meant that our cameras needed to come on too. So I've been getting dressed more than ever before during COVID times. And I feel like that is the opposite of what many others experienced. It's funny that you say that because I literally went out this weekend. I These curtains behind me, for those of you listening, I have the most hideous curtains on the planet behind me. They were here in the house when we bought it years ago and I've never changed them. And I finally bought a plant. This one's fake. I've got real ones all over. But I was like, I need something to be able to control in the background because I'm looking at the screen going, you know. But it's an, it's an interesting observation that you make because even pre-COVID, you know, in various roles that I've been in and running teams with remote team members, I try to get people because you're so much more engaged when you're on the computer. You can tell if someone's not paying attention or checking their email or whatever. Um, and because it's become the norm, like I had tried within organizations that I worked at to get cameras on, to be like, let's do a video call every week. And they didn't want to because of the PJs, you know, or the whatever kind of... Um, looking like an adult, I guess is a good way to describe it. I, I feel like it's, uh, I feel like the reins have loosened a little bit, like with people being home in terms of, I mean, both of you look very nice today. I, you know, I have makeup on today, some earrings and it's, we, we all look nice, but I'm not, in a, I couldn't tell you the last time I wore a business like suit or a jacket or anything like that. Cause you can't quite tell on the camera. Varun, how do you feel about that? So in the beginning I did, you know, spruce up a little bit but then I've never been somebody who would you know put formal attire ever so I've never done that I was forced to do that to an extent for only for some time but then you know I, I came back to my normal self like you know it's not helping me so on that point I did wanted to ask Lou how did that help you Erin like in terms of sales I mean now you're doing more selling online right so looking good on the video and how what factor do you think do you consider that as a part of your um, overall organization, do you make that as a cultural thing? I mean, because you are client facing more or have you given freedom to the people to be just who you are? Like how, how does that work in your culture setup? I mean, Right. Yeah. Great question. So, I mean, for sales, I think it probably does help. Um, I was, I was the type that would want to have the camera off previously just because of, you know, like getting dressed and getting yourself, you know, spruced up every day for work. Um, 
one of the perks of remote seemed to be that I could avoid that. But um, now that we are turning cameras on in sales, because we're following the lead of our clients who now are used to doing the same thing on their side, um, I think that we have the opportunity to form more of a personal connection with them. And we often hear that that final decision, you know, they'll be talking to five or six firms, they'll narrow it down to two or three firms on the basis of just the, the checks and um, and X's of the comparison process, but those final two or three, oftentimes the choice is made on vibe. It's made on personality and culture fit. So um, I think that the video probably helps with that. Um, we do talk to our team here internally about how to present themselves to clients um, in the most, you know, uh, the best way, putting your best fit forward, but we do follow the lead of our client organizations because oftentimes they have multiple people on their side, um, participating in the process. And we certainly don't want to cause them any sort of discomfort. So if there are cameras on organization, we'll be cameras on with them. If there are cameras off organization, we'll be cameras off. And of course, internally, I know my team, I know them, and I don't need to see their faces every day or for them to look any particular way for me. Um, but we do, we do have at least one meeting a week. That's a little bit more focused on connecting. Um, it, it used to be company wide. We're a little bit bigger now. So we've kind of got a, a few different versions of that running. Um, but meetings really just for the purpose of connecting internally is a thing. And I think that that's one of the, the strange differences between in-person and uh, rem remote or like in-person, you wouldn't be like, you know what, we're just all going to get together in a conference room. We're just going to like do some icebreakers and smile at each other, but there's a little bit of that required to keep everybody humanized to one another um, how, remotely. How is that going to change for you going forward? Now you are remote. You think you're going to stay remote forever? Or I mean, how, how has that changed you, your company in taking the decision on hiring process as you look into the future? Right. So, you know, I used to, uh, well, you know, for me personally being remote, I loved it. I wanted to be that way. Um, and, uh, that was how we were going to do, um, as COVID has happened now we're seeing a lot of workers that, you know, really prefer it and they really want to be that way. And we're seeing, um, I think more it's, it's just so much more normal than ever before. So I anticipate that this is the way that we will stay, you know, right now, Slide UX employees are located in approximately 10 different cities. Um, and they're all great, you know, so I'm not willing to, I'm not willing to sacrifice any of those folks. And uh, as we grow, I love the flexibility of posting a job listing and saying like location doesn't matter or any location inside of the United States or, um, or whatever that is, it, it opens up doors to hire people that can be on a farm in, you know, Pennsylvania. And as long as they can figure out the internet connection, then we're happy to have them. We're on a boat, you know, isn't that like a famous line for a movie? I'm on a boat, you know? Um, yep. How does that, you said you guys are in 10 states. Are you guys, uh, have you explored options externally outside of the states? Have you gone, have you gone global? I guess this might <laughs> That's a great, that's a great question. Many of our clients uh, either are based internationally or they've got team members internationally. So we do a lot of international collaboration, um, but we have, and, and we have from time to time uh, contracted for smaller things. We don't have any permanent members of our team outside of the United States. Um, 
And it's not really because we're opposed to it so much as that we just haven't ever broached the topic. And I know that there are probably a few things to figure out with how, um, how to set them up to be fairly employed and to manage differences such as different holidays and stuff like that. We haven't done the infrastructure piece to make that a thing, but, um, I think that there are definite advantages to it. I see us all kind of becoming one world, um, through remote collaboration. So you, you mentioned you did try the, um, contractors in the past, um, and with COVID, as we hear more, talk to more, more agencies, everybody is, seems to be more open to go global because now things are remote anyways. Um, do you see that as um, a challenge for you, for your, for your competitors at all? Because we hear from many agency owners that um, things may start looking differently going forward. Yes, you are selling on the discipline, on your skill set, but still there are several components of the work that people are using um, you know, low cost labor and reduce their cost and profit margin. Well, not the profit margin, profit margin will stay the same or may improve, but their cost of providing a service will start getting more competitive because now people are using resources externally. So um, how do you see for your organization and your approach for, you know, of how you want to structure your company? Have you given any thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, I think that's a great question. And I, I think that that is probably pretty variable by area of specialty. For us in user experience design, um, culture and time zone are both key. Um, culture, because we are really helping uh, our clients to understand how their users are going to perceive the interfaces. So it's not uncommon for us to be contacted by a company in another country that wants their experience to be good for an American audience. Maybe they're doing great somewhere else, but they want to figure out how to do well in our market. That's a reason to contact us. Um, similarly, when we're contacted by a company that's in another country and they are targeting an audience in another country, particularly in another language, it's happened sometimes, we'll immediately call out to them that that's probably not going to be a good fit for us because I can't tell you how those users that have other norms for what they're used to experiencing online and um, how they might communicate uh, will interpret that user interface. So I think that that is something about our specific space that is a bit geographically protected um, or unique. Um, the other thing is that for us, we really are focused on the consulting piece of it. And we are here at Slide uh, not super, super interested in holding on to the more executional parts of the work. There's a lot of work to be done. You know, there's a lot of pages to be designed or images to be made, but um, some of those things are much, much more easily exportable um, to, you know, other teams. And uh, our focus is really more on the consulting piece and the one-to-one -one client interaction piece where, uh, where they're located and what times they're uh, available. Um, and even for the user research, if we're researching with an American audience, what times our, our people are available, all that becomes important. Um, but I absolutely see how for a lot of ancillary uh, areas that this is increasingly viable. For our company, I actually think that we do have a few unique characteristics that make it advantageous to stick with a, a you know firm like ours. So talk, talking so talking about those unique characteristics and the specific niche that you have identified yourself, 
did you did it ever occur to you um, or that that thought come came to your mind about you being so niche specific that you are away from being generalist at all so you are specializing in one thing um, and that could be that could could that ever become a problem or a, or a, or a, you know um, challenge because some companies do try to diversify by going into multiple direction but you chose to stay a very you know specialized in this field um, did you ever consider that as a risk at all or how did you approach that thought well you know I have um a lot of the advice that I received early on um, and a lot of the things that I observed early on um, around diversification of, of services uh, led to me understanding uh, why specialization would be advantageous for a company as, as small as ours is. I mean, you know, we've grown to 22 people, but that's still not that many people relative to a lot of companies out there. Um, and the lifestyle advantages that we were seeking to provide for ourselves and for our team um, are, are well suited for a small company. You know, it wasn't about growth for us. Um, of course, development, uh, closely related to user experience design, but, uh, has its own risks for sure. And I think that there are advantages to splitting projects up between the design, the research, the uh, the development components of it. Um, and we'd had some partners here who had been through the experience of owning firms that were less specialized and really saw how having those different um, areas of the business perform differently could become a, a challenge. So um, I think that for some companies, uh, a more generalized approach where you can be the turnkey partner for all the things that's definitely a go-to-market strategy and for us being an expert in one thing is typically what uh, causes us to be highly appealing to our prospects so um, I think it's all about you know different companies probably shop for some of them are looking for somebody who can take them from point a all the way to point z and we're not going to be the right firm for that company, but we are going to be really appealing for the other type who's like, Hey, you know, I have an internal development team here and they have been designing these interfaces themselves. And, you know, it's not going so well. Can you, can you plug into this team? And we'll say, absolutely. And we're not going to try to take uh, their work away or, uh, or replace them, but we are definitely going to help them find their way. So as a business owner, what keeps you up at night right now? Hmm. That's a a hard question. That's a big one. Yeah, Mm -hmm. absolutely. Um, I think for, um, for us, it is about um, kind of thinking a little bit off into the horizon, um, and trying to figure out where we want to point our arrow for the three or the five year timeframe. You know, we talked about how, we didn't set out really to, to create a business of this size in the beginning. It's wonderful that it's happened, but this isn't, this isn't the, uh, the business following our dream. This is a dream unfolding before us, you know? So, um, we now realize that we have an opportunity to get a a bit ahead by, um, defining a vision that our whole team can move towards. Um, and hopefully that that can empower them to make better operational choices in their daily work. And, um, so defining the vision is the thing that's keeping me up at night. Um, I want to define and communicate a vision to my team that they can, they can work by confidently. Is that a, is it a pivot from what you've had? Is it a, 
you know, cause you've been in business for a number of years at this point, you know, the, from a growth perspective, does that, I'm guessing your, that vision comes from what's next. So maybe that's the question I'll ask. What do you think is next? Yeah, what are you looking a, towards in the future? Well, you know, every company reaches that point where um, they're, they're, they have to delegate or they have to divide decision-making in order to make all of the decisions that they need to make. And so we've been really focused this past couple of years on um, involving our senior leadership team much, much more in the daily decisions of the business. And moving forward, I see more of that. I see that this has gone very, very well and that we're making better decisions and communicating them with our team better than ever before as a result of that. However, there are still a lot of things that um, Brant and I as the business partners are deciding or figuring out on our own. And I'm eager to work through um, better inclusion of the full team in, in all of that so that we can um, How have continue you done to- that? Like, Not to cut you off, but that's a yeah. You know, it's a, it's a conversation that's come up a couple of times as we talk to people. How have you done that? How are you, have you tried things that have worked? Are there, you know, games, tasks, projects, you know, activities that you've found that, that creates uh, bringing people together and sharing and planning, you know, any, any tidbits there that you found? Well, for, for us, something that really changed the game was uh, a meeting weekly as a senior leadership team. We didn't used to do that. We used to meet like once a month Mm -hmm. and um, B preparing an agenda ahead of time with space for comments ahead of time. So throughout each week, like literally the four days in between each of our meetings, we're each stockpiling topics. It could be an announcement. It could be a question whatever it is, we're stockpiling those into a document that we all review before going into the meeting. So you come in prepared for the conversation. You kind of know what we're going to be talking about. You may have already shared opinions and you may have begun the debate ahead of time. And then uh, on the call itself, we're kind of clearing as many of those items together as we can. So, you know, simple organization techniques, right? Like we, we do these things with our teams, but uh, it wasn't intuitive for Brant and I to start sharing some of those conversation topics with others after having carried that load for so long. And so it was a bit of retraining for us to apply those techniques to management. Have you heard of um, EOS? I have, I have. Yeah. And I'm sure some of the ideas I'm talking about may be rooted in that because I know many of the folks I listen to have gone through that sort of training before. Uh, Have you? Yes. So so we have, well, I have heard about that a lot, and I'm also part of, you know, the group which does that. Um, I know a lot of implementers. We, in fact, tried to have in our company too, but um, there were certain challenges. One, we were, we started when we reached at 350 people company, but at that scale, it was very difficult for us to, you know, we to to have that through the company, um, we, we still do that. We still use some of the tools at our leadership level, but we are not doing it at the level I would want it to. Um, but I know a lot of companies who are doing amazing work following that. I think the right size for to implement that is about where you are, like 25 to 50 people is when I think it really starts adding some value. So um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I love the, the concept and the theory behind it. So. 
um, I'm, I'm a full proponent of uh, following the model. Yeah. There's always so many things to learn, right? That's the thing that has, uh, you, there's never a boring day because every challenge in this sort of role is one that I haven't tackled before. Yeah. So it makes it fun and exciting. Yeah. <laughs> and even then I'm looking at three different books that people have recommended. And I looked up the one you said by Paco. It's the mm -hmm. why we buy the science of shopping. That's right. There you go. Yes. Interesting. Very interesting. Well, this was a great conversation. Varun, any more burning questions from your end? I know. I think we covered, I think we covered. everything that we need to, yeah. Yeah. Erin, anything we should have asked you that we didn't? <laughs> no, it's it's really been uh, it's been great. I've enjoyed the conversation. And I, again, I want to thank you for having me here today. Well, thanks for being yeah, here. Thank you for yeah, we saw an opportunity to help other agency owners learn from each other because we all needed to figure out how to do it. <laughs> right, exactly. It's really good to hear from others that have been through it because, you know, you can't just find these folks anywhere. So totally. Well, so for folks can for folks listening, you can find Aaron on the LinkedIn, on the Twitter and then your company website, slideux.com. So that's it. If you learned something today or laughed, please tell someone about the podcast. Thanks. Thanks for listening. Find our other episodes on agencies that build.com. Plus we're listed anywhere you find your favorite podcast.